Lots going on. Well, I hope that you are uh, getting excited about September. It uh, sort of marks, not that ministry ever stops, but there's things that get going, different rhythms of life, and that's, that's a good thing. Uh, we are uh, sort of heading towards a transition in our preaching sermon series. We've been in this series, The Road to Jerusalem, since the spring, uh, working through uh, another portion of Luke. Uh, next week, we're going to end this series, so we're going to finish Luke 21. Uh, then we're going to uh, go through 2 Timothy uh, for the fall, then Christmas. Then we're coming back to Luke. Uh, our plan is to finish the Gospel of Luke by Easter. It kind of works out that way uh, because right after this are the, the events of Easter. And so if you have been with us since we planted, we began the Gospel of Luke in our first year of ministry and it just took us a little while to get to the end. Uh, but uh, hopefully it's, it's been worth the wait. So uh, right now we are going to dive into Luke 21 uh, verses 5 to 24. And this is... Uh, what's sometimes called the Olivet Dis Discourse, uh, because this is Jesus. He's actually on the Mount of Olives. That's the word Olivet. And uh, he's, he's speaking to his disciples. Uh, this is, you could say this is kind of the final bridge uh, from the earthly ministry of Jesus to now the events of the cross. If you have your Bible in front of you, you can see chapter 22 begins with the plot to kill Jesus. So right away we are into the thick of it. Uh, he's already in Jerusalem. Things are going to start happening. And uh, that's, that's all coming. But before he gets there, Jesus takes an opportunity to, to speak some prophetic words. He gives some, some prophecy about future events. And he does so uh, both to warn his disciples, but also to prepare them for what is, what is coming. And even though this is a word spoken primarily to his disciples at the time, we're going to see uh, that he's also speaking to us. Because while he has a, a certain event, the, the, the fall of Jerusalem in mind, uh, he's actually speaking about a bigger end. And so this week, we're going to focus primarily on uh, the end of Jerusalem, but then next week, we're going to see that it's, it's the, the end, the end, when Jesus returns. So we're kind of overlapping a bit in terms of the prophecy that Jesus is bringing. But let's begin. We're going to kind of work through piece by piece. So here's uh, chapter 21. Our first uh, two verses are verses 5 and 6, and uh, I'll read them. And while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So we'll just start there. Uh, this is a pretty normal scene. Uh, if you were arriving to Jerusalem, which, which all, you know, all the Jews did, or almost big thrucks of people coming into Jerusalem for the Passover, one of the things you would always do, of course, would go by the temple. And uh, the conversation around that would always be what, what new thing has been added to the temple because the temple had been under construction for about 46 years and every year they would add more things. But by this point, the temple was a magnificent building. As you were going to Jerusalem, it was kind of on a hill, it would look like a small snow-covered mountain because it would be white marble and then there'd be gold uh, on the top part of it that would just gleam in the sun. Uh, there were jewels and, and, and uh, things that were added to the outside of the building. And often they were added year to year because wealthy benefactors would give some more money to the temple. They'd add something. So this question uh, that one of the disciples is saying, like, hey, look, look, at the, look at the temple. That's what everyone would do. Wow, have you seen the, the temple? They would admire it. It was magnificent. Uh, it wasn't just physically impressive. Spiritually, it was the center of their faith. 
So normally the response is, yes, wow, wow, this is amazing. Man, this just, I just behold the glory of God as I think about this beautiful building. But that's not what Jesus said. He said something that was very shocking. Yeah, you see all of this? Yeah, uh, one day this is all going to be torn apart. There won't be one stone left on, on another. So you can imagine the disciples are like, what? What? They couldn't even imagine that that would take place. And so the next verse is the natural uh, question. Verse 7. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Totally natural question. Whoa, the temple's coming down? When's that going to happen? How will we know when that happens? And, and, and already here, you have to understand, this isn't just like, like a, a grand building uh, coming down. It's not just like the Empire State Building or some big building. We're like, oh, I wonder when that, that would be. It's not just significant in the sense that a big building is coming down. This is, this is something that would shake their entire faith. So when they're thinking about the temple coming down, they're already thinking in bigger terms than just a, a, a catastrophe or, or, or a war, whatever it would be. Now, I want to give you, um, we're going to look at two different timelines today. The first one is a, a shorter timeline. So we'll, we'll put it up there. This is really what Jesus is going to talk to them about. A short-term prophetic timeline. I mean short-term because if you look, this is about 33 AD when Jesus is speaking. And he's going to talk to them about events that we know now happened in 70 AD, which is when the temple came down, the fall of Jerusalem. So when he's speaking to them, he's speaking to them about something that will actually happen. And they're wondering, when will it happen? He answers them. And so let's look at that first. We're going to actually jump in the text because he gets to like answer their question specifically in verse 20. So, so here's what he says. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his, this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this is a specific prophecy about what would happen, and it did actually happen. In 66 AD, uh, there was a Jewish uprising. Uh, you know already, if you know anything about the Easter story, there's tension, right, between the Jewish people and the Romans, those are the, the Gentiles, and so they, there's always those who want to push back. The Romans are too strong, but they get a band together, and they kind of, they, they take over a little part of, uh, of Jerusalem there. Uh, and so Rome, being Rome, they will have none of it, right? They're like, they, Rome always responds with overwhelming force. Right? So if there's like 5,000 insurrections, they send 20,000 troops. And that's what happens. Uh, the emperor sends his son, Titus. And he brings like thousands and thousands of, of, of Roman soldiers. And they come and they start to reconquer the area around Jerusalem. They want to make sure. All the little towns. And they make their way to Jerusalem. And they find themselves in a situation where there are about 20,000 Troops, Jewish troops inside the city. There's like three walls. They break through the, the first two, but the, the final wall is, is, is a tough one. There's a bunch of troops inside. There's another few hundred thousand people inside. And so what they decide to do is lay siege to the city. This was what Rome liked to do. Very effective. 
They built a wall, another wall around the city so no one could get in or out, and they just waited. This was a, just before the year 70 AD uh, that this started to happen, and then the year 70 AD where they laid siege to the city, and what you see Jesus describing is accurate. He, he says, alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants. Why? Because there's no food. The nursing mothers could, could no longer produce milk. The, the, the people inside starved to death. It, it, was, it was horrific inside. The, the historians at the time describe just deplorable acts of cannibalism, of child sacrifice. I mean, the people in the city just starved. They were like zombies walking around. The walking dead, no food. Until finally, also what he says here, they will fall by the edge of the sword. Finally, they break through and the people inside don't even put up a fight. They're, they're too exhausted. There's bodies everywhere. And they just, they, laid, they just destroy the city. And what happens to the temple is that someone lights a fire. There's different accounts of, of who. The Romans will say it was the Jews. Let it, the Jews say it was the Romans. But um, they, the Romans didn't intend to tear down the temple, but someone lit fire to it. And so Caesar said, just, just take it all down. And what happened is that when they lit fire to it, the gold that was in the temple actually went through the cracks of all the stones. And so when Jesus said there would not be one stone left upon another, that's actually accurate because the soldiers pulled them apart so they could get at the gold. And so what Jesus is describing here, it actually happened. He says it was a desolation of the city because it wasn't just destroyed, it was spiritually uh, destroyed. Uh, just like hundreds of years earlier, uh, there had been a, a ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, who actually set a statue of Zeus up in the temple, desecrated it. It was like that again. This desolation of abomination is another, the gospel how, is, is what is described here. And let's make no mistake. This was actually God's judgment upon the city. If you remember the, earlier in the summer, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he weeps over the city because he's, he's so full of sorrow. He knew even then what was gonna happen because the Jewish people, the people of God, would not heed God's leading and guidance and the Messiah that he sent. They, they would reject him. He knew that. And just like back in the Old Testament, when the people of God were in sin and God had that temple destroyed in discipline, the same thing's happening here. And so it's God's, you see, look in the, in the text, God's um, vengeance, days of vengeance and wrath against the people. It's, it's God's wrath. God is bringing judgment. He wants to make clear that the, my people have not listened. They've not, the Messiah came and they, they, didn't, they didn't take notice. They killed him. And so it's, it's God's judgment against the city. But, but it's also God's mercy for the world. And, and that's because the Christians in the city, they remember Jesus' words. When, when Jesus spoke these words, so there's the vengeance, uh, the wrath against the people, but he also said at the very beginning, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that his desolation has come near. So if you look at the timeline again, we'll jump forward to the, the timeline. Uh, 70 AD was the, when that happened, but just before, okay, if you go to the next slide, um, the people were, were kind of had their antennas up, the Christians, the ones who actually cared about the words of Jesus. And so when they started to see the city being surrounded, the, the Christians fled. And they fled to a hill city named Pella. And so uh, amazingly, most of the Christians actually survived all of this carnage, all of this destruction. And the reason that was mercy for the world is that they had the gospel. They had the good news. And they were forced out into the world. And that's, that's how the mission began. 
that they started in Pella and they started spreading out so that the Gentiles, the people who were not Jewish by heritage, they could hear the message of the gospel. That's why it says that they were trampled, the city was trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled, which has not happened yet. Uh, most of us here are Gentiles. Praise God that he, that he pushed his people out, the Jewish people, with the good news so that our ancestors could hear about the message of Christ. And so all of this is... I hope you see a short-term prophecy. Meaning, within their lifetime, they were going to see this happen. Jesus was warning them. He was instructing them. He was helping them to know what would happen. Uh, but his focus isn't just on the end. Hey, you notice we, we jumped over a, a bunch in the text. Uh, the, the middle part is, is Jesus really concerned with what was going to happen between his words in 33 AD and the end in 70 AD. So, so the time of waiting is of great concern to Jesus because he wants for his disciples, for all those who follow him, to be faithful during that time. It's not just enough that they would know, look, there is an end coming. He wants them to be faithful and that's, that's where the overlap is for us because the, the temple's gone. We know that. This prophecy is fulfilled. We know that. But the parallel is between that prophetic word and the larger prophetic word of when Jesus will return. That, that's the bigger picture of this text. And next week, we're going to see it. Jesus is going to talk about, I'm coming back. Let me tell you a bit about that. So we're going to look to that. But even here, the application for us is, is, okay, what do we do while we're waiting? We're not waiting for the temple to be destroyed. We, we are waiting for the end, for when Christ will return. And so what instructions does Jesus have for us. Same, same for the disciples back then, same principles, because the same kinds of things are happening. So let's take a look. Here are the instructions that Jesus gives while we wait for the end. There's four of them. The first one is this. Uh, don't be led astray. Okay? Don't be led astray. Look at verse 8. And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So at the time, there were a lot of people still that were, even before Jesus actually made it to Jerusalem, that said, look, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you're waiting for. Right? They were all liars. They're all puffed up. They all led people astray. Jesus was saying, that is going to keep happening. And, and it did keep happening all through the centuries. Uh, in fact, one, one that I learned of in my study that I, I hadn't heard before, in 1648, there was a Jewish mystic named Sabati Sevi who claimed to be the Messiah. He he was a very pious uh, Jew. He was very faithful, lots of fasting. People were very impressed with him. Apparently, he had a very strong, commanding voice. People loved to come and hear him speak, but he started to claim more than just he was, you know, uh, uh, a wise teacher. He started to claim that he was the Messiah. And, and he, would, he would call people to, to see him that way. And one of the things he said was that he could fly, okay? However, um, no one could see him fly because they were not holy enough to see him fly. So it's kind of convenient that he had this power to fly, but you just can't see me fly. So he had some claims that you would think when you hear that, you're like, come on, like can no one see? But actually thousands and thousands of Jews at the time, they followed him. They considered him to be the Messiah, not just in the Middle East, but in Europe, as far away as Europe. And he had a, he had a big following. So big uh, that the uh, Muslim leaders at the time in Constantinople, they, they heard about him and they brought him before a tribunal. They were concerned about his influence. And so they gave him a choice. 
They said, look, you can either be put to death by a volley of arrows, which was supposed to uh, kind of determine, there, you know, a lot of people, a lot of archers would shoot these arrows. If all the arrows missed, then we would know you actually are God. If not, you would die. But if it, right, so that was the test, right? If this is really what you claim to be, or here's the other option, or you could convert to uh, Islam. And he converted. Imagine the thousands of people that were putting their faith in this, this wise man, says the Messiah, and all of a sudden, he's, he's Muslim? All of a sudden, he's taking the easy way out? Imagine the hurt, imagine the faith that would crumble. Jesus is saying, don't be led astray. Right? Don't listen to those who say that they are the Christ. Next week, we're going to see, just so we're clear, it's not going to be confusing when Jesus gets, comes back, okay? He's going to descend from on high with the, the angel, you know, our angel armies. It's going to be very clear that the Messiah is, is coming back. Uh, but Jesus is saying there's a lot of people who can be fairly convincing. And it always ends in destruction. Sometimes, sometimes uh, physical death, right? Think of in modern times, the Jim Joneses, the David Koreshes, those who claim to be from God, claim to be God, and they, they lead people to mass suicides. But even if it's not that obvious a destruction, it will always destroy our faith. Anything that leads us away from Christ himself is going to harm our faith. We need to have our antennas up. We need to be, to be watchful, be wary. That's what Jesus is saying. But not just for those who claim to be Christ. He also says, be, be careful of those who say the time is at hand. I think this is maybe more common. You hear this a lot. People, Christians, will, will say, it's got to be the end times, right? I mean, with, with all that's going on, in America, they'd say with the debt as high as it is, everything's going to crumble. It's gotta, it's, the end is very near. COVID certainly made us all think the end has is, is got to be close, right? You look at the moral decay. Look what's going on in the schools. We, we all have this sense that, you know, we're like on this rickety, you know, some sort of cart going down a mountain. We're going to fall over the side pretty soon, right? I mean, how can this keep together? And Jesus is saying, just be careful, though. Be careful that you don't get wrapped up in that. Because there's lots of Christians who spend time trying to connect the dots between words like this that we're going to see and, and world events and news stories. And, and amazingly, not amazingly, there's a lot of people on YouTube who would like you to watch the videos and, and say they know exactly the connections to make. And we can go down a rabbit hole of all of a sudden spending a lot of time trying to connect the dots when Jesus says there are not actually dots to connect. He says, look, Matthew 24, 36. Look at this verse. This is, oh, I have it here. This is the one that we should all know and have it stitched on a pillow, right? But concerning <laughs> that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Okay, and look at, and look at verse nine in our text. I skipped this one. He says, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. He's saying there's going to be a lot of turmoil. There's going to be a lot of things that make you think it's the end. Listen, if, if World War II wasn't the end, like imagine Christians then, right? A maniacal leader trying to take, literally almost taking over the world, clear demonic influence. If that wasn't the end, we, we're not, probably not going to be able to figure out when is the end. But it's okay. We don't need to worry. We don't need to spend all our time figuring that out. He's given us things to do. He's given us a mission and a message to proclaim. And he's saying, don't, don't get caught up in these other things. But he says, more than just don't be led astray. He says, don't miss opportunities to bear witness. 
Now here he gets into a bit more detail of what, what the disciples back then could expect. Look at verse 10. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now this is fascinating. Actually, all these things, you can, you can find historical events that would show the fulfillment of this prophecy of, of Jesus. Uh, nation against nation, as I said, there's a Jewish insurrection in 66 AD. Earthquakes uh, in Phrygia in 61 AD. Pompeii, massive earthquake volcano in 63 AD. There were famines during the reign of, reign of Claudius and Nero. Uh, uh, Josephus records cosmic signs like comets overhead and persecutions. A lot of persecution of the church, all before 70 AD. All these things historically. You can look and see what Jesus is talking about is exactly what he knew the people standing in front of him would go through. And he was saying, this is, this is obviously going to be a time of, of chaos, a time of uncertainty, a time of personal hardship. But notice what he says in verse 13. This will be what? Your opportunity to bear witness. It's not what we usually associate with those things, is it? We're usually praying that all of those things would stop. Right? Stop. And it's not wrong to. We should pray. I mean, we should pray for the, for the fires, pray for the natural disasters, pray for things. But, but Jesus is saying, don't only do that. Look for the opportunity. This is how Paul saw the world. Uh, look at this verse, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 8 and 9. This is Paul uh, writing about his time in Ephesus. Uh, he says this, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. He doesn't see the two as mutually exclusive, right? He's writing and saying, this is great. There's a lot of great, I mean, there's a lot of people. They're gonna wanna kill me. They're gonna beat me. They're gonna put me in prison. But I'm most excited because there's a lot of people's hearts I can just sense they're open to the gospel. And so the two, right, he doesn't, he doesn't go somewhere else. He doesn't say, Lord, I really want to do ministry, but I just wish that all of these people would stop being against me. Then I could go and do some work. No. He sees the two often go together. And that's very instructive for us. Because I think for most of us, we, we would want to be more effective in our, in our ministry, right? In our, in our witnessing, in our sharing. It's just that, it's just, man, there's so many people against us. The whole, the whole culture is against us, right? All, all the, the moral kind of leaning, the, the tide of morality is against us. There's so many that are against us. And so we tend to feel like it's just not the time. I don't know if I can, I can do it. I don't know if it will be effective. And what Jesus is saying is there will be opportunities for you to bear witness. But it'll be in the midst of a lot of hardship. A lot, a lot of trials, a lot of difficulties. But look at the encouragement he, gave, he gives, uh, verse 14. He says, Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now this, this is what we see if you read through the book of Acts, isn't it? That, that the disciples, these, for the most part, uneducated Simple men, fishermen, uh, 
guys who didn't have any training in rhetoric or even like deep training in theology, they were then thrust into this position of standing before, you know, the Jewish leaders, the guys who'd studied all their life and, and have to give an account for what they, what they believed or, or before uh, the Roman leaders. You know, Paul often in, in, in court settings having to sort of explain. I mean, he was trained beforehand, but, but the hope is not, like Jesus saying, that the point isn't that as my followers, you, you worry and spend all your time ahead of time writing notes and figuring out exactly what you're, you're, you're going to say. And if you don't have the perfect thing, then maybe you're going to wait till next time. He says, don't, that's not the right approach. He says, there's going to be opportunities, but don't worry, I will be with you. The spirit of God is going gonna, is gonna to give you the words. And we see this. Look, look at Acts 6. Stephen, uh, faithful Stephen, who will be uh, martyred soon after this. But look at what it says about him. This is just him in his regular ministry. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Syria and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. That's a lot of people coming against Stephen, right? But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. That's a fulfillment of exactly what Jesus was saying. So what's the, what's the application for us? What's the lesson that we should learn here? Well, certainly, hopefully we will begin to see that the challenges in our life, the opposition in our life, as, as, as there being opportunities within those moments, they're not things that we should shy away from. They're not things that should discourage us. We should say, you know, probably here this person who's really antagonistic where maybe there's an opportunity. But the other thing we should see is that the most important thing isn't that we know ahead of time the perfect thing to say, but that we say something. I mean, isn't that what, it, isn't that what he's saying? Don't worry too much. If, if you don't have everything figured out and, and you, don't, you, know, you don't think you have the perfect response and the perfect explanation, don't worry about that. What you should be concerned about is just opening your mouth. Because if you don't open your mouth, then they're not going to hear anything. And, and, and when you open your mouth, you're putting your faith in the spirit of God who is within you, which is always the right place to be. If you think about these, like if you read, I mean, Stevens, like they, they give amazing sermons, amazing responses. And I sometimes think, how did they get to that place of being settled, right? It says, be settled, therefore, in your minds. And they got there, not all at once is I think what we should see. It seems someone like Stephen, we haven't heard much about him, and all of a sudden he's proclaiming these things, We're like, man, he must have been working on that sermon the whole time. No, he, what he was doing the whole time was listening to the words of Jesus and taking small steps of obedience, right? Putting himself in the hands of, of Christ, yielding to the Spirit, little by little. That's what you see with the disciples, right? Jesus says, come, follow me. They, they obey. Come, come with me in my ministry. Watch what I do. Go out two by two. Try it out. They, little by little, they grow to the point that when it really matters, they open their mouths, not knowing exactly what they're going to say, but having heard the word of God and having become used to trusting in the spirit of God. We can do the same thing. And it happens every day. When we're in the word, when we're in prayer, and then when we are open to what the spirit of God would have us do. Right? In every situation in our lives, Lord, what is, how can I love this person well? 
How can I deal with this person who's so difficult every day? Give, give me the capacity to know how to respond well. And then maybe there's a moment like this where we have to give an account and it's not unfamiliar because we're used to doing that. He says, don't miss opportunities to bear witness during this difficult time, which we are in as well. Third thing he says, don't give up. Here's verses 16 to 19. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. This is, this is the same kind of thing Jesus, like this is not new, right? We get this. Jesus hasn't told them all the way along, everything's gonna be great, everything's gonna be fantastic. I'm the son of God, you guys are gonna be cared for. And then here, he switches it. By the way, you might be put to death. This isn't a surprise. Just if you're new with us, this is the same kind of thing Jesus has been saying the whole time. But he's just reminding them. And he's making it very, very personal. It was personal. It, it was family uh, schisms would happen when you were a, a Jewish man or woman, son or daughter, and all of a sudden you became a Christian your family, you, you were separated from your family. They were antagonistic towards you. Same thing happens today to some extent in this area. Certainly it happens around the world. That there's some of us here, some who are part of our congregation who have relatives in different parts of the world where, where they've been ostracized. They've been exiled from their family. Where their family is against them. This, Jesus is saying, this, this is part of what it means to follow me. That you realize and recognize that that I must come above every other relationship because I'm the one who is the savior of the world. And I haven't come just to always bring harmony. I've come to bring truth. I've come to bring salvation. And so there, there will be a point, he's saying, where you're gonna have to know the difference. Here's the difference he's pointing out between your physical life and your spiritual life. That, that's the only way this verse makes sense. When he says, um, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. You'll be put to death. That's verse 16. Verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. Doesn't seem to make sense unless you recognize there's a difference between being put to death physically and not a hair on your head spiritually perishing. Which is the gospel message, is it not? Right? That Jesus himself put to death physically but raised spiritually. Eventually, by the grace of God, we, we get our physical bodies back. But if we don't have it clear that right now, our physical body is, is not, should not be the focus. Our spiritual life should be the focus. If we don't see that clearly, we're not going to make it to the end. And that's what he's saying. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Over and over through the New Testament, this is the exhortation for the church, for the Christians. Listen, you have to endure. You have to persevere. Paul uses a terminology, you have to run the race, you have to make it to the end. It, it, you, only, you only succeed if you make it to the end. There's sadly evidences in the Bible and in our lives of those who have started off well and not made it to the end. Why? Usually because they get confused about the difference, the value of their physical life, physical comfort, earthly life right now, and the future. And they begin to shift their gaze. Things get hard. People push back. They feel like God's disappointed them somehow. The things of the world seem a lot more enticing than they first thought. They stop reading the Bible. They stop taking time in prayer. And before they, they realize it, they're off. They're no longer following Christ. 
They haven't endured. And so they will not gain life, true life. And Jesus is, is saying to his disciples, you have to be careful. You have to be clear. You have to endure. Don't give up, even when things are difficult. And the apostles keep reminding us this over and over and over again. And so we should take this to heart. Right? It's going to be tough. It's going to be tougher than we think. But if we don't have it clear in our mind that the, the spiritual life that we have because of the, the death and the resurrection of Christ, that is the thing. My union with Christ, my faithfulness to his word, then we can easily be led astray. The fourth uh, instruction is, is actually comes a little earlier, but I think it kind of, it's kind of like a blanket, I would say, over the whole thing. The fourth instruction is, is this. Uh, don't be afraid. If you think about what he said up to this point, there's a lot of reasons to be afraid. Uh, but if you look back at verse 9, we kind of just glossed over it because I wanted to come back. Verse 9, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. The end is coming, right? The, the, the temple for them, there's going to be a, a moment, yes, but for us, future, when Jesus returns, that's the moment. The end is coming. Everything is going to change then. But in this time of, of waiting, Jesus' words to us is, don't, don't be scared. Don't fear. Don't, don't, be, don't be terrified. And he's saying that because he knows there are a lot of reasons for us to be scared. If you just read the list of all the things that are going to happen, it's terrifying. You think of the people in our province who have been terrified this summer. That houses burned down or nearly burned down. Not to mention the, just the personal things. I mean, the things that he describes here. Maybe because of our faith, our, our family being pulled apart. Maybe because of, of our faith, people are, are against us. We're, we're enduring persecution. There's all manner of things that would, that would grip our hearts with fear. And yet Jesus is saying, don't, don't be terrified. This is coming. You're probably going to be put to death. And for the apostles, that was all of them. Violent deaths. But don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. How, how does this make sense? Well, I heard a great uh, story of a pastor who kind of lived this out that I want to tell you. Uh, his name was Donald Gray Barnhouse. Uh, this was in the 1930s. He was a pastor in the, in the UK. And he tells a story where he was, he was preaching uh, in, in Scotland. Uh, he was preaching in Scotland and uh, the next week he was meant to preach in Ireland. But his family... Uh, was vacationing on the French coast, right? And so in Europe, you can get everywhere like easily, right? It's so close. So he's like, I'm gonna go visit my family for the week and then I'll go back to Ireland, I'll preach there. Uh, but it was, 19, it was the summer of 1939 and uh, things were tense with Germany. And so when he went to the, get on the plane, the border official was like, are you sure you wanna, like, do you have plans? I gotta be back in, in Ireland by the end of the week. He's like, don't, I don't know if you should do this. He's like, no, I want to see my family. He said, well, don't say I didn't warn you. Stamped his visa, he got on a plane. Uh, as he landed, uh, Hitler invaded Poland and everything, you know, World War II started. So now he's in France. He has to get his family. All of the, uh, the, the flights have stopped, right? The passenger flights have stopped. So he's got to get his family. They get to the coast of France. They get in one of the last ferries. And as they come back over to England, it's just, it's not chaos, but it's, everyone's preparing for war. Everywhere you go, 
right? They're putting sandbags around all the important buildings. Uh, when he goes to the train station, because he's got to take a train, he still wants to make it up to Ireland. Uh, the train stations are filled with children, right? You know why? Because they took all the kids and they sent them out to the countryside. So all these kids, scared, crying kids, he's in the trains with them. He makes his way, right? It's near the end of the week, Saturdays, trying to make his way up north. He finally gets the last ferry over to uh, Ireland. It's like three in the morning, he gets in. The pastor is very glad to see him. He didn't have a sermon ready. So he's like, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Everyone's ready. So he gets like two hours of of rest and then he's got to preach and the church is packed. Everyone is tense. Everyone knows what's coming. There are many, many young men in the congregation who are about to be sent off to war and everyone wants to know what does the Lord have to say to us this morning? And Barnhouse points to this passage. He reads that verse. And in his translation, it was actually, uh, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be alarmed, is the way that it would say. I forget what version he had. And so he says to the people, look, here's here's what I've gone through just to get here today. He describes just the, you know, the, the, the chaos of trying to get through the, the country, everyone preparing for, for war, the, the children, every, everything. He's like, you, you know the, the tents, but this is, God is saying this to us. How does this make sense? Here's a quote from that sermon. He says this, Oh God, unless Jesus Christ is God, these words are the most horrible that could be spoken to men who have hearts that can weep and bowels gripped by human suffering. Men are dying Don't be alarmed. Children are crying in their misery with no beloved face in sight. Do not be alarmed. How can Jesus Christ say such a thing? And he gives the answer. Because Jesus Christ is God. Because he knows what he's talking about. Not just knowing the future. He he knows he will be there. And that he will be involved in every situation. He says, when, when we are tempted to be terrified... It's because we've forgotten who we are and who he is. If we remember, here is the son of God come in human flesh to to deal with the enemy that can destroy our souls forever. And we recognize that we know the end of the story, what happened already, that he went and conquered death, conquered Satan, conquered our sin. And he's saying to us, don't be terrified. Don't worry. Yes, there's going to be wars. Yes, there's going to be heartache. Yes, there's going to be fill in the blank right now for the thing that is terrifying you. He knew, he knew that would happen. But he's saying, I'm, I am who I say I am. I'm God incarnate. I love you. I'm for you. If you ever doubt that I am aware of your suffering, look to the cross. I, I did the thing that you needed, the most important thing that no one could do, and then I promised you. What did he say? I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. What did Paul say? Everything in our lives we worked out for good. Do we believe he's God? Do we believe that he is the Messiah? Not someone else coming. Not someone else coming and telling us they know how this is going to end. He told us. Right? There's going to be wars. There's going to be hardship. But you have no reason to fear because I'm with you. If we know and believe that, then even the, the things that are gripping our, our hearts and our, and our bowels, that's a good word because we know that fear. We know just in our stomach where we just can't get settled. We can pray in faith. We can actually be settled in our mind, settled in our heart, that Jesus does actually have everything in hand and that he will bring it to his perfect resolution 
Because it's what he always does. It's what he's doing. As we look to the future, we know there will be a day, there will be an end, but it's not gonna surprise us. We can be ready because of our faithful walking by him step by step, by his power and by his grace. Let me pray for us as we close. Lord Jesus, we do, we do need these reminders. It's so easy, Lord, to be caught up in the, the things and events that are happening and to be terrified, to be worried, to be unsure. Lord, every, every radio broadcast this summer has talked about fires almost destroying people's homes and cities and our hearts just are broken for them. Lord, we look around the world, we see the, the turmoil and yet, Lord, the truth of the matter is that none of this is unexpected for you. And your word to your people back then in 33 AD is the same word to us today. That there will be hardship, but there will be opportunity. That, that, that we have a life that cannot be uh, snuffed out by, by illness, by death, by persecution. We have a life that will go on into eternity if we endure, if we, if we seek to to make you known in a faithful way, not that we are earning anything, but that we are revealing where our hope truly lies. And so God, I just pray for us. I pray for each one here, especially those of us who just have real trouble with what's going on in our lives, just coming to a point of, of settledness. The anxiety just keeps bubbling up. Lord, maybe look at these words and recognize these are, these are not the words of a, of a foolish man, of an imposter, who's just trying to, to give us empty, hopeful words. This is the words of the Son of God. Jesus, you who were there at the beginning will be there at the end. And you know each one of us and you love us deeply. You've given us your spirit so that we would have the assurance that when we try to say anything to, 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 to tell people about you, that you will help us. And whether it's perfect or not, you will use those faithful words for your glory, for our encouragement. So please, Lord, help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.